The Steelers were heavily favored this week in their battle against the Chicago Bears at Heinz Field. And they won the game with a last-minute field goal after leading for 53 of the, of the 60 minutes of that game. It was a game that again proved that football doesn't always make sense. I'm Jeffrey Benedict, and this is The Cutting Room Floor. It's Tuesday right now. I'm recording this first half of The Cutting Room Floor early in the morning. The second half of today's show I recorded yesterday. Monday night games make a Tuesday podcast a lot of fun. In the second half of today's show, I'll be talking about PFF grades, what they tell us, and what they cannot tell us. Focusing heavily on some very interesting grades from the Steelers' Week 8 matchup with the Browns. Today's show is focusing on things that on the surface don't always, that don't always make sense, often make sense when we look at it deeper. When we take a step further, we look at the game deeper. For example, let's start with the Steelers rushing from this game. All three of the Steelers' top receivers ran the ball twice. All of them. James Washington, Chase Claypool, and Deontay Johnson, each of them had two carries. They gained 37 yards combined on those six carries, while the running backs gained 68 yards on 24 carries. The wide receivers were much better at running the ball than the running backs were. That, on the surface, is a little bizarre. The number of carries receivers got and and how effective the jet sweeps were in this game. But you don't have to look too deep to figure out that the Chicago Bears were heavily focused on stopping the run. From the very beginning of the game, they were all in on stopping Najee Harris, understanding that the key to beating the Pittsburgh Steelers is stopping the run game and making Ben Roethlisberger beat you with his arm. Ben Roethlisberger is an old quarterback. That's a, as that's less likely to happen than it has been at any point in his career this year. That It is less likely that he beat you with his arm than at any other time. So as the Bears are stuffing the run and being very aggressive against the Steelers' rushing attack, jet sweeps became more valuable. Also with that, uh, Canada's quick misdirection plays. We, we saw Ben's little run out to the side uh, with, a, with a receiver out wide and then pitch underneath to, to Pat Fryermuth. We saw him pitch that underneath twice, and we saw a third time when they took that away, he actually threw it outside. All three of those plays gained you know, decent yardage. Not great yardage, but they're decent yardage. And what they do is they take the edge off the defense's aggressiveness. If you just hand off, in the box and run between the tackles, they can tee off on that. They can they can attack that and shut it down. We saw the same thing with Chicago's offense, where the Steelers were very focused on getting to Justin Fields. They were very focused on stopping the running backs and the, and the Chicago's run game. And they gashed us a few times with plays where they went misdirection off of those and, and took advantage of the Steelers' aggressiveness in defending the run. A few of Levy of uh I just a few of Najee Harris's runs uh that were really effective, the, the end of the first drive, 
when he scored that touchdown. Just beautiful, beautiful blocking. Uh, some of Chicago's guys were off the field, uh, and they the Steelers just caught him, and, and Najee had two great stiff arms to run it. But one that stood out later in the game, a couple stood out later in the game as being longer runs, where the defense actually bit harder on the jet sweep than they did on the run play, and Najee Harris was able to gain yards. That's the whole point of a jet sweep is you kind of balance the rushing attack. You say, we're going to run this ball, right? We're going to run it, but we're either going to run it outside or we're going to run it inside based on what the defense is doing. And so you can sometimes catch them, and then we caught them twice with inside runs. Uh, the one stood out, if you if you saw the game, you can probably imagine the exact run I'm thinking about where Najee Harris picks his way through uh, through the defense, like very Le'Veon Bell style, just making his way and showing patience and finding little gaps. Great run uh, by Najee Harris and a great blocking by the offensive line. The game's aggression early on, man... Uh, really set the tone for the game. But also, I, I want to focus particularly on uh, the play where the Steelers, Kendrick Green, and one of the Chicago Bears, I can't remember his name, uh, got offsetting personal fouls. Both both were involved in both messed up. Uh, and after that call, the number of fouls called started picking up. I mean, there were a lot of offsides. There were a lot of procedural penalties uh, that were just, I mean, they're, those are just natural to the game. Those are going to happen. There was a lot of sloppy football, which also comes when you consider the, the intensity and the aggressiveness both teams were, were showing on the field. But after those personal fouls, those are a sign to the referees. When players start mixing it up like that, that is a signal to the referees that they need to police the game more, that they need to keep this from getting out of hand. You don't want to be the referee that is in there splitting up guys when there's a brawl going on. You don't want to be that guy in the middle of fist flying, right? So when players start tussling like that, it tells the referees you need to get more involved. And we saw them get more involved. We saw a crazy number of penalties in this game. But when you consider the atmosphere of the game and the fact that these players kind of told the referees you need to step in, it makes sense. Also, when you look at how aggressive Chicago was being in both on, on defense and how, you know, aggression on offense often is, is desperation. And as the game went on, Chicago got kind of desperate and you saw them making a lot of plays. A lot of, you know, not great football. A lot of, I don't want to say dirty, not uh, ugly, sloppy football. Sloppy, I think that's the word I want. Sloppier football. And with that, you see the referees calling more penalties, but you also see them seeing bad plays where there weren't bad plays. There was a couple of times where you're just sitting there looking and they're calling a penalty, even ones on Chicago, and you're just like, oh, you know, that's not, that's not a very good call. But when the referees are believing they need to be involved in policing the game more, you're going to get more of those. When you're seeing sloppy football, you're going to see bad plays even when there weren't bad plays. So for me, a lot of that, you know, it, it's it's understandable. It makes sense to me 
even though on the surface you're like, man, like stop calling this, you know, like like just kind of step back, stop calling so many plays. We don't need a we don't need a foul on every single play. Sometimes you do. Sometimes the referees believe that you do, or they start seeing penalties where there aren't penalties. One thing that really that I think made sense uh, watching the game is early on the Steelers had the advantage in aggressiveness and energy. They brought it to the Chicago Bears and really kind of dominated them from from an energy and and an aggressiveness and kind of a want-to standpoint. They just wanted it more early. I was a little surprised to see in the third quarter the Chicago Bears come out and ratchet up their energy level to the point that they were they were out, you know, they were out aggressiveness seeing the the Pittsburgh Steelers. They were bringing it more than Pittsburgh and they were kind of winning that battle. You also saw towards the end of the game Justin Fields start to have success against the Steelers defense. And there that that made a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense to me as well even though you sit there and look at it and you say, he's a rookie, you know, what are we doing? All of a sudden we're giving up pass plays, we're doing all this stuff. Well, you know, maybe we backed off, maybe we weren't sending pressure. No, we were sending pressure. We were sending people still until that last drive. We really didn't go into prevent. And not only that, we didn't go in dime defense much. We were in nickel and we were still being very aggressively playing the run and blitzing, going after Justin Fields. But we were often doing it a lot of times, we had a lot of three-four sets out there. A lot of our three-four personnel groupings out there with three defensive linemen. And beyond Cameron Hayward, the Steelers' best pass rushers are Chris Wormley and Henry Mondo. And neither of those guys are great pass rushers. When you have Isaiah Bugs in there, when you have Isaiah Loudermilk, you don't have much pass rush. Even when you have Mondo and and... And Wormley, you don't have a lot of pass rush there coming from those interior three. So when you have a 3-4 alignment, if you're not blitzing, if you're not sending five guys and, and sending both D, both your outside linebackers, you've got Cameron Hayward and TJ Watt usually, or Alex Highsmith, and the other one's dropping into coverage. You don't have much pass rush. And as the game went on, and we were running – Three, four sets a lot in that game. Those defensive lines starts to tire out. And all of a sudden, that pocket's not getting collapsed. And T.J. Watt going up the arc is behind the quarterback. And Justin Fields is able to step up. And Justin Fields is able to run out of the pocket. And he's able to do the things he did late in that game in the fourth quarter to bring Chicago back and take the lead after they had trailed Almost the entire game, from five minutes into the game when the Steelers scored, they trailed until he took them and got them in the the lead late in the fourth quarter. The defense was getting tired. The defensive line was not getting pressure. They weren't getting the same energy. We also saw the Steelers kind of, kind of, kind of bite themselves. With some, with some fumbles, particularly one bad one. We saw a ridiculous interception by Cameron Hayward. I mean, it doesn't get 
football doesn't make less much less sense than Cameron Hayward batting that ball and then it falling from from the best I could see on the on the on the broadcast and from rewatching it it looked like the ball was knocked down between him and the offensive lineman and was kind of pinned between them right and then he gets both hands on it and it's a catch and it's an interception it's a turnover uh we had the kickoff where the Steelers played Renegade and James Pierre. Man, what a play. Renegade is playing. It's ending right at the kickoff. James Pierre comes up, knocks the ball loose, and it bounces straight to Chris Boswell. That's That was fantastic. That that excited me. That was fantastic. And that that's one of those things where we don't account for frequently. When we look at a game, we look at the stats, we look at PFF grades, we look at all these things. One thing we can't account for is things like little things, like energy, getting pumped up, going out there and making a play. And they played Renegade, and James Pierre went out there and forced a fumble. Absolutely fantastic play there. Another person I want to cover, I want to cover uh, Pat Fryermuth. Pat Fryermuth is turning into an incredible weapon. He is one of our better run blockers. He it was showed he was dangerous with the ball early on, those little those little shovel passes. He was a great counter option on those. And he made some really tough catches this week. Uh, a very heads up veteran move to get to to get open. I mean the safety had him. He kind of did a little swim move to get free of the safety and get open for Ben to hit him for the first touchdown. The second touchdown just just flat-out beat a guy. I mean, the guy was interfering with him, but he was able to get his arms free, come down with the ball. What a game Pat Fryermuth had. What a player he is becoming. The last three games, Pat Fryermuth has tied for second in targets or better. This week, he tied for first. He had as many targets as Deontay Johnson, believe it or not. Deontay Johnson, who usually dominates the targets category, uh, Pat Fryermuth tied him this week for the most targets. One last thing I want to talk about is the last drive of the game. The last drive of the game where the Steelers gave up a lot of yards and gave Chicago the chance to, to win the game with that field goal that went off the front of the upright. People will say, you know, the Steelers were in their prevent defense. You should never go to that. Well, there's a difference this year in the Steelers' prevent defense from other years, from the last couple of years. They don't have Cameron Sutton as the dimeback. James Pierre is now the dimeback. They don't have Steven Nelson outside. If you look at our setup from last season, when they went into to last, you know, late situations like that, where they're just kind of, hey, you know, hold them short of the sticks, keep them in bounds. Don't let them get out of bounds, run the clock, and don't give up anything deep. The Steelers were highly effective in that defense last year. What they would do is they ran kind of a cover three. Four guys shallow, three guys deep. But their three deep guys would be, uh, last year it would have been Steven Nelson and Joe Hayden outside, and the middle, the deep middle zone was Cameron Sutton. And up front in the front four would be whoever the linebacker was, usually Robert Spillane. Mike Hilton and both safeties, Minka Fitzpatrick and Terrell Edmonds. And Mike Hilton 
And Robert Spillane, being better tacklers, would be outside and they would play really close to the sideline. And their job was to tackle people in bounds. Well, if you play them outside, the middle of the field, you got three deep, you got two outside, you only got two defenders, and you've got the entire middle of the field. But those two guys in the middle of the field happen to be Minka Fitzpatrick and Terrell Edmonds. You're not going to test Minka Fitzpatrick because you don't, because the Steelers would love it for you to do so. We'd love to end the game with an interception because you threw it anywhere near Minka Fitzpatrick on that, and, you know, trying not to throw t- over him. Because you've got Cameron Sutton behind him, you've got Joe Hayden and, and Steven Nelson back there. You're you have to throw, you know, in a mid-range route. You can't lob it over him. You've got to throw, and Minka Fitzpatrick's right there to take it away. And his partner is Terrell Edmonds, who happens to be one of the freakiest freakiest athletes on the field at any given moment. He's just that fast, and he played great in that role. You also had a lot of good tackling, all in the front four. This season, without Mike Hilton and without Steven Nelson, you have Cameron Sutton and Joe Hayden outside. But who's your deep middle? It's not James Pierre. It's not Minka Fitzpatrick. They put Terrell Edmonds there. They're putting Terrell Edmonds there. And with that, they've been putting Robert Spillane inside with Minka Fitzpatrick. And that means your outside guys cannot be as aggressive to the sideline because the Steelers don't have the same speed in the middle. And the, the Chicago Bears were attacking the the outside on Robert Spillane's side because there was ability to do so and get out of bounds. Last year, you didn't have that because you had you know Cameron Sutton in a different role. You didn't need him to be your outside corner. That, to me, was a, was a big big question mark here going forward is it used to be the Steelers in a situation where you had to move the ball down the field, passing the ball, throwing it quick and get out of bounds. You were done. The Steelers had you beat. You were already lost. This game showed that's not going to be the case this season. We don't have the personnel to just shut that down and lock a team out like we did years before. That is something to look forward to. Uh, look, t- not look forward to. Look at and watch for for the rest of the season. I also want to bring up Arthur Millette, uh, our Nickelback. Last thing here, quick to set up my second half too. Arthur Millette was one of the highest graded Steelers, especially in the defensive backs. I think he might have been the highest graded defensive back at the bye week. He got another good grade against Cleveland. Again, playing in smaller doses. This week, Chicago went after him. They went after Arthur Millette, and specifically one of their touchdown drives, went at him three times and had success against Arthur Millette. We're seeing this, where teams are starting to kind of figure out our depth on defensive backs and are targeting them more. I'm going to talk more about that in the second half of our show when I talk more about PFF grades and focus heavily on uh, on the Browns-Steelers matchup from Week 8. So we're going to hit a break right now, and I will see you after the break when it is yesterday for me. All right, thank you for listening.
Welcome back, Steeler fans, to the cutting room floor. And welcome back to Monday afternoon when I'm recording this. Well before the Steelers' Monday night game against the Chicago Bears. So hopefully, we're all in a good mood as you listen to this. I really wanted to take some time to talk about PFF grades this week because there's a lot we can learn from them. As long as we understand what they're telling us. And in the past couple of weeks especially uh, with the Steelers' Week 8 win over the Browns, some interesting PFF grades showed up that really kind of reveal what PFF grades are all about, how we should view them, how we can use them, and also understanding the limits of what PFF grades and and any any system that tries to break down play-by-play what happens and and give a player a number or a win or a loss rate, really the limits of that kind of analysis. To start, I want to take you back uh, to some of my earliest, earliest shows of the cutting room floor when we focused in the preseason on the three R's, rank, role, and results. If you missed that show or don't remember, rank is simply... Where what's your standing on the team? In preseason, it was a, it's a very big deal in preseason. Are you are you on the first team out? Are you in the second team? Are you facing you know the other team's third team players? Are you facing their starters? That was a big deal. Well, at this point in the season, it's more about like how many snaps you get. Are you a starter? Are you you know Minka Fitzpatrick playing one hundred percent of snaps most games, or are you? You know, James Pierre, who comes in in dime packages. Are you a backup? You know, what, what's your rank? That's still important. Uh, more important than rank during the season is your role. What is your role? Like, for example, uh, Minka Fitzpatrick, his role is frequently the single high safety on the field. When the Steelers are blitzing, when the Steelers are, are relying on their pass rush to make the play for them on defense, Often Minka Fitzpatrick is the only deep safety. And with the cornerbacks the Steelers have, not having much help, that's a really hard role. It's a lot of ground to cover and it's a lot of help to give. And we'll we'll get more into that later. Or are you, you know, let's go back to Trey Norwood. Are you Trey Norwood and you're the dime back? And when you're on the field, your job is pretty, pretty simple, right? You have one area of the field to cover. You have a very singular assignment in dime is that your role on the team where you come in and you do mostly you know a couple of things and so you do them really well you're a specialist that those are the first two r's rank role and the third is results what actually happens on the play and this is where we get to pff because pff grades look at results they intentionally ignore rank and they intentionally well, I wouldn't say intentionally. They they don't really encompass uh, a player's role. They look at what the player is doing and their success rate at it. It's not necessarily as uh, as much ignoring a player's role or rank as say stats do, where uh, like tackle statistics. They don't. Uh, if you just look at tackle statistics, it doesn't tell you anything 
about the rank or the role a player did. It just simply says, do they get it on the tackle? That's that's the only thing it cares about. PFF does a little more with role as they try to evaluate like what this player is doing. But as as we'll talk about today, they don't encompass role very well. It's not a system, any kind of system where you're just breaking down success and failure on an individual player. You're often ignoring the role that player is playing simply because you, you can't you can't always know it. So you have to look at it and say, you know, does that look like a win or a loss? One one of the things I've always enjoyed is it's a long-standing kind of tradition that uh, Pro Football Focus's highest graded cornerback almost every year is either a team's number two cornerback or sometimes even a slot corner, someone who is drawing easier assignments or receivers and receives more help from the team. But PFF doesn't care about that. They don't care about the rank on the team. They don't care if you're a number one or a number two receiver. They don't care how much help you're getting or how much you're left alone. They only cover the results. So PFF, that's, I want to throw that out there. Um, and I want to move to the first player we want to talk about here today, and that is Miles Garrett. Miles Garrett was PFF, Pro Football Focus's Defensive Player of the Week for his effort against the Pittsburgh Steelers in a loss. Now, there were other players that had better stats than Garrett, other players whose team won games that they were important in, but Garrett won it because stats and wins and losses aren't exactly what PFF is looking at. They're looking at film, and they're looking at the results of plays, Right? What was the result? Did Garrett win the play or did he lose the play? Not did the Cleveland Browns win or lose the play. Did Miles Garrett win or lose the play? So why did Miles Garrett win PFF Defensive Player of the Week? Because he absolutely dominated Steelers rookie left tackle Dan Moore Jr. And let me say from the start, absolutely dominated him. Okay, Dan Moore Jr. has consistently improved over the course of the season, but facing one of the absolute top defenders in the game, the Steelers chose to rarely give him help and mostly let him just go one-on-one against Garrett, and he lost that battle consistently, including being graded a zero, point zero, flat-out zero, no points in plas blocking against Miles Garrett and in the for the game and yet Miles Garrett had a very limited impact on the game he he hit Ben Roethlisberger twice he had one sack but other than that the Steelers offense kind of just did its thing with Miles Garrett over there beating Dan Moore Jr the entire game now if you if i told you that TJ Watt dominated a team's offensive tackle all game and absolutely destroyed him on pass rushing downs, you'd expect TJ to record a a good number of sacks, maybe some strip sacks. Uh, You know, you'd expect big plays from TJ Watt, tackles for loss in the run game, but that didn't happen with Garrett. And yet, his PFF grade is legitimate. He was that dominant. What we're not considering at this point, if you're sitting here listening to this and you're saying, well, you're telling me things that don't make sense, what we're not considering is the Steelers' offensive scheme. Dan Moore Jr. wasn't 
out there being required to stop Miles Garrett. They left him one-on-one with Miles Garrett. More Dan Moore Jr. often you can see he's he's really concerned about letting Miles Garrett get inside of him, right? Get inside and split the pocket right into the middle of the pocket. He's using his length to kind of keep Miles Garrett outside. Just slow down his speed rush and make his arc go a little go a little bigger. Garrett blew past him every play. He got past him outside at will. But Ben Roethlisberger was getting rid of the ball fast. Uh, they moved the pocket at times. A few times when they needed to, they gave uh, Dan Moore Jr. help in the form of Najee Harris, who, by the way, I've, I've talked at length about him being really bad pass blocking. He looked better after the bye week. He actually he actually did a little better. Uh, in, run, in the run game, they didn't run at Miles Garrett most of the game. When they did run at Miles Garrett, it was on downs where you're you know, he was pass rushing. If you watch the plays, most of the time, he's pass rushing. We've seen this with T.J. Watt. I've talked about with T.J. Watt, where T.J. Watt is, is going for the quarterback, not reading run at all, and the team other team runs the ball right where T.J. Watt would be. We've also seen T.J. Watt against Seattle get pulled out of that role, get put into straight up, you know, you need to stuff the run, and we've seen him dominate as a run stuffer when that's his sole responsibility. Miles Garrett, when he's rushing the passer, is easily ran past. Uh, the One of the best plays, Dan Moore Jr. got two pancakes on this one run right at where Miles Garrett would have been. Miles Garrett is rushing upfield, and he's blocked by Pat Fryermuth coming, like pulling from the other side, coming over and blocks him, and he's out of the play. Right, the the for the most part on rundowns, they either ran away from Garrett or they ran at Garrett when they figured he would be pass rushing. And on pass plays, Ben got rid of the ball fast. They moved the pocket a bit. They they, as I said, gave Dan Moore Jr. help when they needed that block to last a little longer. They were, but overall, the team was able to just strategically say, "We're going to take a a loss." on that side, and we're going to be okay. We're just going to accept that we're going to lose that matchup, focus our our numbers and our our offense other places, and just basically write a script where Miles Garrett can't impact the game at a high, can't have a major impact on the game, no matter how good he plays. And it worked. It absolutely worked. All they were really asking Dan Moore Jr. to do was slow him down a bit, not win the battle, and it worked. So that's my take on Dan Moore Jr. and Miles Garrett uh, and how scheme really, like Matt Canada plus Dan Moore Jr. negated Miles Garrett, even though Miles Garrett won that matchup almost the entire game. Moving on from Miles Garrett, I want to talk about Trey Norwood. Trey Norwood at the bye week, and especially the first, I think, four or five games, was getting graded really highly by PFF. Very, very highly. In the game against Seattle, he got attacked a little bit more, and his grade dropped. And you look at his advanced stats, he didn't have the greatest of games. He made some plays, but they Seattle was going after him a bit. And he made some plays, but he also got beat a few times, too. 
in the game against the Cleveland Browns, Trey Norwood only played seven snaps. He was targeted twice, gave up receptions on both targets, 30 yards given up, grades are down. It's it's one of those plays where you look at it and, and you have to wonder, are teams kind of figuring out Trey Norwood? Do they have enough game film on him now where they can say, hey, we're going to target this guy when he's on the field and we now have good ideas on how to attack him and how to beat him? Because before the last couple of games, he wasn't giving up stats. He wasn't giving up catches. The grades were really high. And you have to kind of wonder, maybe that's because teams didn't really know how to attack him. He was being protected enough in coverage and, and in our dime that teams really hadn't figured out how to go after him yet. And maybe teams are now. This is something we're going to have to watch. Is Trey Norwood, you know, kind of getting exposed now? That will be something to keep our eye on to see how he bounces back, how he recovers, what the team has him do. And we may see, uh, we're going to see how much he plays against Chicago. Obviously, Cleveland likes to run the game, and the game was close throughout. Uh, Cleveland really didn't go put the Steelers in dime much, and the Steelers responded to looks where sometimes they'll go dime. They went nickel. And just said, no, we, we're going to stuff, you know, we're going to make sure we stop Nick Chubb. That's our main concern. And that leads to the next one I want to bring up beyond Trey Norwood, and that is Terrell Edmonds. Terrell Edmonds would get the Steelers' worst defensive back grade in week eight. And frankly, it makes sense. As the Steelers are focusing on stuffing the run, one of the things they did was they brought Terrell Edmonds up into the box more. And especially on those plays where they're going nickel instead of dime, Terrell Edmonds basically was the dime back, right? He played that kind of dime back role, and we just went single high behind it. One of the ways they attacked Terrell Edmonds was with a lot of pick routes. He was in man, and not just in man on somebody in the slot where he where he played a decent bit, but he was reading run first. His first priority was reading the run play. His second priority is man coverage against, you know, a, a receiver. That's a tough role to take on. One of the ways they went after Edmonds was in pick routes. Uh, they were constantly running him through traffic, running him on through pick routes. And we saw some of the players, linebackers, uh, Arthur Millette on one of them, not get out of the way well. We saw Terrell Edmonds struggle with blockers when they were tight ends and offensive linemen. That's something he does. He's not going to win those battles, right? He's he's an athlete. He's a safety. He can cover people pretty well. He is not going to win matchups with a decent blocking tight end. And all of the Browns tight ends are pretty good blockers. Or an offensive lineman getting to him. Offensive line gets to him. He's done. He's not going to impact the play. We saw him losing those blocks because he's up in the box. He's getting picked up and blocked a decent bit. Uh, one of the times he wasn't, he was the he was the one guy who wasn't blocked. The Browns won every single block they had, but because Terrell Edmonds was in the box, he had a shot at Nick Chubb. Met him at the line of scrimmage. Boom, they collide. He hits Nick Chubb. Nick Chubb loses his entire momentum. And Terrell Edmonds stops him. But, like, it's... It's crazy to see it. It's a great play. Terrell Edmond hits him and, like, bounces off, bounces back. Nick Chubb stops, right? 
But Terrell Edmonds is knocked backwards. Edmonds then is able to grab Nick Chubb, wrap him up, and bring him down. Watching that play, I was just like, there you go. That's that's a great box safety play by Terrell Edmonds on one heck of a running back. To stop Nick Chubb like that and then still be able to bring him down was a fantastic play. I thought Terrell Edmonds played really well considering how hard of a job he was asked to take on in that game where you are one of the primary run defenders. You're one of the primary guys chasing down and getting to Nick Chubb. And at the same time, you're in a very, you know, you're in a very tough matchup assignment and you're doing both. He took on that harder role. And one of the reasons you have a player like Edmonds take on a harder role is you say, okay, the the Browns are going to have some success attacking Terrell Edmonds, but more than that, we're taking away much more valuable places for them to have success. We're using that, you know, we're exposing him to being to his weaknesses a bit, but at the same time, we're taking away their strengths by doing this. And it worked. The Steelers stopped the Browns run game. They held him to 10 points. He took on a harder role so his team could give help to other players, stop the run, and win the game. So while he may grade poorly, and he may even look bad. If you just watch the game casually, he doesn't look good. There's a lot of plays where he's chasing a receiver because he's come off a pick play or he's been blocked or he's been focused on the run and then has to chase him down. But when you look at the whole game and you look at the role he was asked to play, it makes sense. So the grade makes sense. PFF giving him a terrible grade makes sense, but that doesn't mean he played badly that game, it just means in the role he was asked to play, he took a lot of losses. Just like Dan Moore Jr., in the role he was asked to play, he took a lot of losses. But he was asked to play that role so that the team could win the game. Right? Dan Moore Jr. wasn't didn't they didn't need Dan Moore Jr. to win that matchup with Miles Garrett. They didn't need Terrell Edmonds to consistently win every matchup he got. What they needed was for the team strategy and the team scheme to work. And both those guys contributed to the Steelers' scheme working and to a win against Cleveland. And that's that's my analysis of PFF grades. Uh, They don't... It's not that they're wrong. It's that they're not properly in context to give you an accurate representation of what happened in the game. Thank you for listening. This has been the second half of uh, of the cutting room floor. Let's go Steelers. And uh, I, hope, I hope when you're listening to this, you're celebrating a Steelers win. Right now I'm just going to say go Steelers, beat the Bears. All right, thanks for listening.